This psalm, Psalm 61, is part of a sequence of psalms. 61 through 64 has a lot to do with the Messianic king who's crying out to God for intervention. While Psalms 65 through 68 deals with God's response to those cries. Four significant cries uh, that go in God's direction in 61 through 64 followed by four responses from God in 65 through 68. So again, all these psalms are meant to be wedded together, connected. Furthermore, what you and I find as you're turning there is that, as we've noted in prior times, uh, we are in now book two of the psalms. And unlike book one, which placed a greater emphasis upon the name Yahweh in the Hebrew, Lord. In book two, the emphasis is upon the name Elohim, God, which was more of a a broad, universal name for God. So in other words now, what we find is that the psalmist is now speaking to the nations in book two. And what he is now doing is proclaiming that the one who is referred to in book one as Yahweh, the one who you can have a personal relationship with, this Elohim now, as he expands his his scope to the Gentile populations, he's now making a powerful statement that he is our exclusive God, and you're to put your faith and trust in his anointed one, the Messiah, who you and I know as Jesus Christ. So now we're in Psalm 61, again part of a sequence of 61 through 64, where you will find four what I will call cries or requests being made to God. And as we're working through this, I want you to notice the connection between verse 1 Hear my cry, O God. And verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. So what I'm saying is that here is the God who grants a hearing. And this messianic king who is leading towards Jesus Christ pointing in his direction, is the one now that's giving us a model for prayer in the way in which in our times of adversity we can now look to God, cry out to God, knowing that God grants hearings. So you'll notice that this likewise is to the choir master with stringed instruments of David And here you read, hear my cry, O God. It does not say, O Yahweh, O Lord, hear, O God, Elohim. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, strong tower against the enemy. 
Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Then you'll notice once again the word Selah. So again, it comes with the idea musically, this is a rest in the midst of the measure. He wants you to pause. He wants you to think now about what has just been stated. So you've structured your thoughts around the opening statement. Hear my cry, O God. Now in verse, in verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness watch over him. So what's his response to all this? So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. And now you link the word vows in verse 5 to the word vows in verse 8. And you're able now to structure the way in which this psalm is meant to be understood as we now look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, we're thanking you for this great privilege of being able to again come in your presence to worship you. And thank you that in this case, David has given us now a wonderful way in our times of challenges and difficulties of structuring our prayers so as to seek your, seek your intervention. So we pause to pray for all those that are in need right now in this church, in this county, and beyond. Again, Father, we pray for what's taking place in the conflict between the Ukraine and Russia. You are sovereign. You are the global ruler. We pray, Father, for an extraordinary intervention and draws minds and hearts of Ukrainian citizens and Russian citizens alike to you. And grant, Father, I pray all those who are involved in various shapes, forms, and this in this conflict to be people that are stirred to seek you seek you first in all things pray in all these services today the online worshiping gathering that likewise we put you first in all things so, Father, again, now these moments are important as we explore this psalm together. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills.
As once again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was very difficult for him after the Civil War to be able to lead a nation when he himself had been general of the Northern troops, Ulysses S. Grant. Would he be able to gain the trust of the Southerners while unify North and South simultaneously? He had been wearied and he was approaching his point of going home to now be with the one he had put his faith and trust in in recent days, his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so he called for General Howard, who was a Christian soldier, a friend who had had a great impact upon Ulysses S. Scrat and the way in which he lived his life faithful to the Lord. And he asked him to come by with a particular reason on his heart. When General Howard arrived, he quickly reminded Mr. Grant of his extraordinary service to the nation and that the entire nation, not just the North, would hold him in great respect. But the autobiography and furthermore biographies of Grant give you the impression that that is not exactly what he wanted to be involved in conversation about. For we are told by a biographer that with a muffled voice Grant interrupted Howard and then with eagerness he looked up at Howard and said, Howard, I have one request. Tell me more about prayer. Quote, unquote. Now this strikes a chord and because what you and I do is we transfer that story into our own circumstances, don't we? And we ask ourselves, well then, in our own times of trials, in our own periods of difficulty, when we face the upheavals of life, we need somebody to guide us in order to shape the way in which we pray. And so now, what better example here than David in eight verses? where it's very possible we have a situation where this prayer, this request, this cry, was born in his, in his challenges of, of um, he and Absalom. So what I want to do this morning is to look very carefully at the structure of this twofold prayer and try to discern just what it is that God would teach us and gain two perspectives that I see in this passage. First of all, out of one through four, when praying in the midst of trying times, look back. Look back. And consider how God has protected. This is now what 
David is about to do. He's not going to waste the experiences of the past. But rather, he's going to invest the experiences of the past into the trials he faces in the present. Now, he knows that he has access to God. You and I know that when we put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as our Lord and as our Savior, we've got access to God. His access was based upon putting faith in the one who is to come. Our access is based upon having put our faith in the one who came. And it all converges at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so here you find, and here I find now, that, that David is, is seeking a hearing and so, with a very personal request on his mind and in his heart as a messianic king, pointing in the direction of the ultimate Messiah, Jesus. Hear my cry, O oh, in the Hebrew, Elohim. So now, as David pens these thoughts, he's penning these thoughts not just to the Jews, but to the global community, using the name Elohim in the Hebrew, God, G-O-D, in the English. Listen to my prayer. Now, when you and I get up to verse 2, what I want you to be able to see at this point, I want you to feel it, is that he is using here a geographical expression to describe his emotional extremes. From the end of the earth, I call to you. Now, in reality, David had not traveled to the end of the earth. This is, this is poetic description here. What he is doing is he's taking the extremes of geography and saying, I am living in the extremes of everyday living. He had to deal with 1 Samuel experiences and saw. Now he's dealing with 2 Samuel experiences with Absalom. And it seems as though it's relentless. There's just no end to it. And maybe this morning you're saying, this just seems so relentless what I'm going through. Sorry. There seems to be no end to it. From Saul to Absalom? Saul, a man to whom I ministered? Absalom, son whom I raised? My inner circle of relationships? These are the means by which I'm having to work through the trials of life? So again, he uses a geographical analogy to communicate an emotional state of his being. From the end of the earth, here it is again. I call to you when my heart is faint. And now what fascinates me here is that that word faint carries with the idea of somebody who's stumbling He's losing his footing. He's looking inwardly as he is communicating a physical thought outwardly. 
It's almost as if he's saying, I'm losing my footing. I've lost my traction. I need some stable ground. Been there? Ever felt like you've lost your footing in the dynamics of everyday living? God can use that, you see. To be able to show us just where we're to plant our feet. Because now you and I are told in verse 2 that his request is this, lead me. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, this is fascinating. Notice that he says, lead me. In other words now, for all those that have ever been involved in rock climbing, there is value in understanding the importance of having an instructor who guides and directs, who might be just slightly ahead. I thought of that when watching, observing some rock climbing. This sense of going upward. I've done rappelling, going downward, trying to find my footing on the way down. But I'm fascinated by the rock climbers who are attempting to find their way as they make their way up. And so I began to ask some questions of those that are involved in rock climbing. And I said, what life lessons can I, can I learn? And of course, as I posed that question, I was thinking, for example, of 2 Samuel chapter 23, of verse 3. Where towards the end of David's life, we find these last words, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. And then we think about the song, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And so I began to ask some questions about those who head upward, while my repelling experience was heading downward. And some of the things that I found in common as I explored answers to that question were such answers such as, first of all, maintain your focus upon the rock above. Another comment. Determine and discern what movements are necessary to make your way to the rock above. Adapt wisely. Study rock formation. Know when to rest. Stay in the present. Breathe. Now, when you and I look at this at this point, what we see then, it's as if David is saying, this has been all uphill. And I'm trying to find my footing in the midst of whether it be Saul or now Absalom. I am claiming what you had said to me. You're my rock. 
So what I now request of you at this point, be my instructor, be my guide, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now at this point then, what you and I find is that he is looking for a place where he can be protected from all the various elements that have come his way, that have perhaps worked against his, his upward progression. And when you and I are examining our lives, we have to ask ourselves, what particular issues are hindering my upward progression toward the rock which is higher than I? Can you spot them? What are those elements of life that keep me from getting closer to Jesus? At this point then, what interests you and me is that he then says in verse 3, you have been. Does not say you will be. In other words, he is looking back. Notice the heading. Look back. Consider how God has protected. And now as he structures for you and structures for me how to pray in the midst of trying times, and notice the way in which he metaphorically speaks of his protection. You have been my refuge. A strong tower against the enemy. Michelle Johnson writes, sometimes we need to take a look at where we've been with God to really understand his faithfulness and love for us. We're told that she was staying with her son at the hospital following a serious surgery. And on a particular morning, she was exhausted by her stay, and her steps were slow as she walked to the cafeteria for breakfast. But while waiting on the elevator, she realized she was on the sixth floor. The view out of the window of the concrete roof held special significance. It was one she had seen many times before, because it was the same view for the six weeks she had seen after her car wreck. And now in the same setting with her son, same floor, same view. We're told she looked back, reflected upon the fact that she had been told that she would never walk normally, have arthritis within a year, need replacement within five years, none of which happened. Rather, 35 years later, what she did was to retrieve the memories of God's faithfulness as she took in the view and allowed the past to inform the present. People, 
It's very important that we allow the past to inform the present. Taking the view. At times we're going to say, I've been there before. But then recount the ways in which God's grace was operative in the past. And transfer the stories of grace into the present to be able to effectively manage the trials of life that you and I are, are facing. You have been my refuge. And all of us need to be able to say that as we look back. A strong tower against the enemy. In Proverbs 18 of verse 10, we're told, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. And for those that have spent any time around Bethlehem, you know that there's a particular tower that was used to describe a place in which a shepherd's would look out over the fields as they were tending to the sheep down below, communicating, communicating back and forth, back and forth. This is, this is your God. And now with his Elohim emphasis, what David is saying, whether it be to the Jew or to the Gentile, You need a place of refuge in life. Somewhere to go when you begin to lose your footing. But look back. Retrieve the stories of grace. Transfer them into the present. You have been my refuge. A strong tower against the enemy. And what fascinates here is that in book two of the Psalms, you oftentimes find that the psalmist is saying, you, when speaking to the enemies. It's as if he's almost evangelistically bringing grace to the opponents of God's will. And now he's saying to the opponents of God's will, and here is where one finds real refuge in life. Well, now. You're up to verse 4. And in verse 4, what interests us at this point is that he is very possibly once again looking back and he's pondering when he says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Because throughout the experience of the Jews in the wilderness, there was this sense of pitching the tent where God would tabernacle in their midst. What's interesting is that in your Newer Testament, we're told, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Greek word means tabernacled. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what does this dwelling mean? What does, what does this sense of pitching the tent mean? Well, it carries with it the idea of the presence of God. 
For you see, if the opening verses deal with protection, you get to then verse 3 and 4, but 4 in particular, and now you're dealing with the presence of God and the protection of God and the presence of God get interwoven here when he says, let me dwell. In other words, he wants to get in. He longs for a sense of being in the presence of God forever. You know the story. John Wesley writes, it was about three in the morning as we were continuing in prayer. He and George Whitfield and a group of others when the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, fell to the ground, and as soon as we were recovered a little from the awe and the amazement at the presence of God's sovereign nature, we broke out in one voice singing, We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. Wesley and Whitfield understood what the psalmist is pending here, penning in verse, in verse 4. Let me dwell. Let me tabernacle. Let me in. I want your presence. Let me dwell in your tent. And notice this is not going to be episodic. This is continual. And furthermore, this is to be eternal. It's forever. <coughs> but back to the refuge. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And what's fascinating is that in the tabernacle, when you're dealing with the holy setting, there were the cherubim with the wings spread out. And he's saying it's here under, under your auspices that I, I need to find I need to find refuge. And then he pauses musically. It's a time for a Selah. It's reading that years after years, people were thinking there was something going on at that resort, the Greenbrier Inn in West Virginia. But they really didn't know the extent of what was happening. But during the Eisenhower administration, while that inn was, under, was constructing a new wing, the U.S. government secretly was constructing an underground bunker that would house the House of Representatives and the Senate in case of a catastrophic national emergency. This refuge was hidden in plain sight amid the amenities of the resort. I'm told the bunker included uh, a clinic, media production room, living quarters, rooms for Congress people to conduct nation's business. Staff had to be there to make sure everything was ready during those years in case the facility was needed. The cover story was that they were TV repairmen for the inn. But years ago, the bunker was decommissioned after a press story leaked its existence. Now it's a tourist attraction. The writer tells us the massive facility never was used, not even in the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
it was an unused refuge, states the writer. The challenge so often in the Christian experience is that God is an unused refuge, longing to be used to minister to our needs. When praying in the midst of trying times, look back and consider how God has protected us in one through four, and there's your Selah. But here's your second perspective, that when praying in the midst of trying times, look ahead. Consider how God will provide. Protected in the past, provide in the future. You look back, now you look ahead. And as you do so then, you are thinking strategically, it's back to the future. You pick it up now in verse 5. And once again now, he's modeling, isn't he, for both Jew and Gentile alike. He uses a but you. They've gone through the pause, the measure in that musical composition. But you, O God, have heard my vows. You see, God has made certain promises. But you see, as David has made promises to God, God has made promises to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we seem to spend so much time referencing, and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we're not surprised when King of the Jews is listed over the head of Jesus upon that cross. And we're not surprised by a resurrection from the grave because this is of a, a king who is to be forever. And so, as a result of all this, then, he says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Jew and Gentile alike, who put their faith and trust in the, in the one we know as Jesus Christ. The global heritage the community of those who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so now up to verse 6. And in verse 6, here's the request based upon the promise. God has promised an eternal kingdom, so you pray based upon the promise. Always do that. Retrieve the promises of God. And then offer prayers to God based upon the promises of God. Promises such as, I will never leave you. The promise of protection, I am your shield. The promise of power, I will strengthen you. The promise of provision, I will help you. The promise of leading, he goeth before them. The promise of purpose, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil. On and on and on. The promise of wise planning, all things work together for good to them that love God. So now you structure your prayers based upon God's promises. You up now to this six Prolong the life of the king. Long live the king. 
May his years endure for all generations. So now David is looking beyond himself, onward towards the one who is to be the promised one in his line, the ultimate Davidic king you and I know as Jesus Christ. And says, may he be enthroned forever before God. And now what David is doing is that he is taking the promise of 2 Samuel 7 and linking it to the prayer in Psalm 61. And likewise, what you and I do is we take the promises of God, link them to our prayers before God. We pull together the hear my cry, O God, of verse 1. With the O God, you have heard my vows of verse 5. You pull together the hearings. You pull together the promise and tie it to the prayer. You're doing great. May he be enthroned forever. He speaks of that one still to come. The Messiah from his line before God. A point of steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hesed, faithfulness, to watch over him. Again, Chakosin. You know the story. When I was in Moscow of 1990, speaking at the Moscow Baptist Church, just blocks from the Kremlin, I told a packed crowd of worshipers that all throughout human history, as far back as recorded time and doubtless before kings and princes, czars and the likes, have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. Only once in history has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead died for his subjects. This is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king, this king, Jesus, reigns eternally. And we're told that they were seated and sitting at the very edge of their seats as they were taking this in. You pulled together the hear my cry, verse 1, with the, you have heard my vows, verse 5, the twofold emphasis upon hearings. You pull together the vows of verse 5 with what's coming your way in verse 8, as you now say, and so what? Always got to be able to answer that question. What do I do with this? Here it comes. That even in the midst of his trials, he's able to look ahead Having looked back, he's got a backwards-forwards thing going here. So, will I ever sing praises to your name, says this psalmist, who is quite the musician, as I perform my vows day after day. Dr. James Hewitt Five or six years ago, I visited a church in Connecticut. And right in the middle of the service, when the congregation was kneeling and singing Alleluia, I saw a woman near me with her hands lifted in praise. 
The thing was, those hands were terribly twisted and narrowed. She had a pair of crutches near her. Dear Lord, I thought, what makes Christians sing Alleluia? Clearly, in this time of worship, there is something besides self-interest welling up inside of that woman. Where in an act of praise, she gave glory to God. So will I sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Howard, President Grant asks, would you please tell me more about prayer? David tells us about prayer. And we're better off for it. Let's stand together. We sing such songs such as Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Lord, we are thankful so much that in this extraordinarily unstable time period in which we live. One of the great witnesses that can be demonstrated through example and then through word is for Christians who have the emotional wherewithal to demonstrate emotional stability because they have found eternal stability in you, our Lord, and can talk about the eternal one who reigns our rock. It is upon you, Father, we place our feet. We give you praise. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.